session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwin. I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Studio number 310-441-0555. So uh, I had to do some book catch-up on Monday. I did the book from two weeks ago, and then so today I'll be doing the book from what would be last week's book, which is The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. Uh, and um, it's a very well-known book. Of course, Franz Kafka is one of the biggest writers of the 20th century, and uh, this book is... One of his very well-known ones, because it has a lot of symbolism, as many of his, his writing does. Uh, there's so many translations to this book, as I was looking up which one to get. And, of course, you're going to hear different people say, which one is the best one? The one I have is a translation by Susan Bernofsky, which was, I think, done within the last 10 years or so. And so the book itself, The Metamorphosis, is about this man, Gregor Samsa, who wakes up one morning and he finds that he is a bug that's how the book starts and actually talking about translation um, this first sentence of the book is notoriously challenging to um, translate or has been translated in many different ways so the version I have is when Gregor Samsa woke one morning from troubled dreams he found himself transformed right there in his bed into some sort of monstrous insect and so even that part monstrous insect sometimes it's vermin sometimes that word monstrous is different so you'll see that people have um, translated in different ways and even I, I read some things about different people trying to determine what type of a insect or bug was it that Kafka meant was it a beetle was it uh, a, you know a beetle who that has wings that actually but never uses its wings in this in this book, which might have an interesting symbolism there, or what type of bug it was. So anyway, I think those things it's, it can be interesting to debate, but might not matter so much. And although this is a very, in a way, science fiction type of a way to start a book, that a man has been turned into some kind of bug, um, it doesn't feel like a science fiction book, and that's not really the main focus, is how did someone, you know, like a, get some kind of superpower or change in some kind of way uh, physically into this other being. Um, it's it's much more than that. And so I, I think there's so many ways to look at this, and I, I'll share a bit about the plot. Of course, in a way, there's spoilers, but in a book like this, the plot is less significant than the interactions and the symbols and the themes that are woven throughout the book. But so Gregor Samson is this, Samsa is this young man, and he wakes up transformed into a bug and so he's trying to understand what happened to him so at first of course it's shocking and he thinks it might wear off or you know it's just some kind of feeling or or something like you wake up with pins and needles in your leg or something of that sort but he sees he's not changing and he's supposed to go to work he's a, a traveling salesman and so it creates all this commotion and he lives with his mother father and sister 
And of course, when they see him, they are shocked and appalled and they, they can't believe what they're seeing. And then he learns that he can't talk. Early in the, in the book, in my translation, he seems to somehow communicate a little bit with a, a few people, saying possibly a few words from his room. But anyway, later he sees he can't be understood or to speak. He can hear people and understand them. So in this way, he's still him, whatever that means. So issues of identity also come up in understanding what does it mean to be someone or who is someone. Um, and then we, we see that he is the breadwinner of the family and, and is the person who provides for the family. And there's themes there that can also be explored, even related to capitalism uh, and what happens to the individual. And so he's trying to survive and the family doesn't know what to do with him. He lives in this in his room. They don't really let him out of the room. They're afraid to leave him home alone. It just obviously takes over their life. And it seems like he is in this state for a few months. It's really mainly his sister that does some type of taking care of him, bringing him food. First, he she brings him milk, things that he liked, um, but he doesn't eat those things. And she brings many things and eventually she starts to find the types of foods and things he likes. And so she brings him food. We see her um, interact with him, the most loving of, of the, the family members. Um, we also see that there's a, a love that goes both ways because he, along with taking care of the family, is saving money so that his sister who plays the violin can go to a conservatory to uh, you know, be trained as a violinist, as a musician. And so we see that there's this love, but of course he never gets to share this with her. He can no longer talk and he says how he had planned around Christmas to um, share this news with her that she, he was going to send her to the music conservatory, but he can't do that. So we see there's that mutual love there. The mother seems just unable to handle the whole thing. Um, and, and, and at times we see her fainting often. The father has an angry reaction at times and even at one point attacks him, throws an apple at him, which gets stuck in his back. And so it's very dark, very, um, of course, as you can imagine, if someone turns into a bug, it's not going to be a pleasant story. And so we see him trying to adjust to this new way of living, but there really isn't much. And over time, he feels that he's a burden on his family, and he actually sees that they might be more okay than he thought. It, it appears that his father he thought was only in debt but has some money set aside and then he starts to work and all the family members start working and it seems like they're doing okay without him and at the end he essentially seems to starve to death or he doesn't have an appetite and eventually uh, he dies and then the family moves on and they seem to move on in a sense there's obviously a sense of peace after this ordeal uh, they seem to be okay and now just moving on with life that's how the story ends it's not a very long book it's a novella um but so that's some of the themes or as far as the plot goes what, what happens but again it's more about the the symbolism which I, I likely will explore in more than one segment because i don't think there's going to be one interpretation to uh, this book there's not just one way he himself um kafka said he had some kind of a dream where he thought of this and he wanted to write it actually quickly in one or two sittings. Um, he, he completed it in about a month. He said it was a very bad type of a dreamer experience, but he, he wrote it pretty quickly. And um, he also didn't want for there to be a bug or insect on the cover. Uh, he was very adamant about that, although interestingly, 
when I was looking to buy the book, I did find some versions of it where there was a, a insect or bug on the cover. Thankfully, the one I got didn't have one, um, although the uh, words are written in a way that it could be the shapes of a, le a, bu a bug itself. So there's not an actual bug, but there is really in a way. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Um, and so he didn't want there to be a bug, which I thought of that as showing even more that it's symbolic. It's not this actual bug or let's think what a bug is like, but some kind of this metamorphosis, this changing in some way. What does that mean? And so there is definitely this big theme of alienation because we see that he becomes this bug and this, you know, of course, he's being othered in some way. Now he's not like us, even with his own family. And they, they, you know, put him in the room. They don't really show him much attention. They don't talk to him. He, I'm sure, wishes if they knew he could understand them. He wanted them to talk at sometimes his sister does say a few words or phrases, but it's kind of like someone might say to a pet or to a plant, even just like some kind of comment more out loud, but not really directly to them. Um, and so he's very isolated and alienated. And so could that also just be a symbol of what human life experience can be like? He is this traveling salesman who is working extremely hard, traveling a lot, bad hours, not great conditions, just to try to take care of his family. Um, so even his life itself is, in my um, view of what how it was described, alienated already before he went through that. He was this isolated type of a thing. Um, and he was basically producing, and this is what I said, that capital capitalism type of mindset where he just became a product, productive cog in a machine and was making money um, for the family. And was that his metamorphosis in some way? Already he was losing his humanity, losing being that person um, that he is or that we are at some core. And interestingly, once the family is doing okay financially or figuring out their ways and that they can survive without him, and of course he's not working, so he's not productive or contributing in the capital type of sense of bringing money for the family, he's no longer needed. And we see them um, at that point later in the book, after it's been a couple of months, it seems that he's been in the state, ready to get rid of him. Even a big change is that his sister, who was the most loving to him throughout the book, even he, she is saying, let's get rid of it, uh, emphasis on that it, no longer him or my brother in some way. It, now it's an it, and that is a big change from um, seeing him in that way. So we see this alienation, also the sense of being othered, that you're not us, you're not part of us. And I think that, of course, can extend to so many different ways that people or groups can be othered um, for many reasons. And so I thought that was interesting how uh, there's a lot of ways to look at that. I, I've heard people talk about when you look at people's interpretations as some kind of did he have some kind of medical illness, um, terminal illness? I was thinking of even mental illness, the way he's othered and we can't communicate to him or with him. And so treating him like a thing over time rather than a human being. Um, so that also came to my mind, the sense of treating him a certain way. But after the break, what I'll do is I'll explore some more themes about this book. Um, I highly recommend it because it's a classic, very um, fascinating read and a short read too. You can get through it pretty quickly. So uh, after the break, I'll talk some more on this book, The Metamorphosis. 
by Franz Kafka. Uh, you can join the conversation about the book or ask any other questions, 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So continuing the discussion on the book, The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. Um, and so the themes of alienation, as I mentioned, are a very big one. And I think as a lot of great art does, there's so much room for interpretation and personal interpretation, which will reflect some of our own leanings and biases and experiences and, and feelings and, and things that we project onto what's going on. Um, as I mentioned, for me, the othered feeling that um, Gregor goes through after his metamorphosis into this bug can be seen in a lot of ways, including things like mental illness um, or if you're no longer valuable in the ways that we unfortunately put value on things in our society, making money, a burden means that you are not making money and you cost something, uh, but when you're producing, you are making money. So could it have been that he woke up and now he couldn't work? And so now he's this bug because he cannot contribute to the family anymore. Um, and so we see him as this insect, but it's that because now he is just some kind of vermin or some type of a, um, a pain for the family rather than being something productive and, and good. Another, another interesting uh, theme or element that comes up in the book um, is and related to me in the sense of capitalism and even commercializing of things is that earlier in the book we see that he has hung some picture of a woman that it's from an advertisement, some beautiful woman dressed very elegantly, I think with like fur cuffs uh, that cover her hands and arms. Um, and later in the book, his family is trying to get rid of the furniture in his room. Actually, his sister in some ways thinks it might be good for him, so he has more room to crawl, but he actually doesn't want it because he, he likes having those things. But then he clings to this picture of this woman, which I thought was so interesting, uh, that that was a thing he did not want to part with. And of course, it could be also he's at an age where he's potentially looking for a wife so there could be something there the erotic or the romantic part of it but I thought because of it being an advertisement and it, it's kind of this uh, decadence in the picture that could that also be this sense of of how we cling to things and think that's going to give us value or make us good or make us feel whole or feel human in some ways but it actually is, is so empty and there's so much more related to that though where we see something with more depth he is in his room and he tries to stay there as much as he can and even tries to cover himself with blankets or sheets so that when people do come in, they don't have to see him because it scares them to see him. But there's one moment where his sister is playing violin, which, as I mentioned before, has significance because he, he loved that and wanted to send her to a conservatory so she could be trained in, in playing violin. And he actually takes the risk almost out of his own control um, of stepping out of the room or poking his head out of the room to hear and see it better, her playing the violin. And so is this some kind of a um, expression of how this creative, this artistic part of us, that's part of that human, that's what humanizes us, that's what makes us um, life valuable, what makes us valuable in some ways rather than the, the commercial or what are you producing. And so that he was willing to risk, of course, even at the beginning, financially wanted to give so that she can pursue that art. But then even here we see this moment of connection and the moment where we see him really enjoying something. He doesn't seem to enjoy much in his new state, 
crawling at times where he gets to crawl on the ceiling. He, he enjoys a little bit, but really there's not much. But here we find this moment where he's so moved by her playing violin and wants to see it and hear it more closely, even risking poking his head out. And then, um, you know, not to get too back, much back into the story, but there's these three men that are staying with them. They are renting a room, the family now, probably to... Uh, financially support themselves better or to take care of themselves. And then they see him and then it becomes this whole, you know, scene because they're saying, uh, you know, how did we, why we wouldn't want to pay to stay somewhere where there's also this type of a guest or this type of, you know, individual or thing here. And so they say they won't pay and it becomes a whole commotion. Um, and that's even contributes further to this uh, sense that the family's frustrated that he's hurting them in these ways and are willing to get rid of him or don't don't know what to do. And, and at this point, he's no longer, again, um, our brother or our son. He's it. And so there's something where he's been lost in the sense of uh, being him. Um, and again, it, could there be that because he's a financial burden? He's even now, not only is he not making money, but he's cost us this way of making more money because of how hideous he is. And so is it hideous to be a financial burden? Um, are we missing something that when we in the way see people as only beneficial in that way do we already take away their humanity and take away who they are what they are when that's the focus because a lot of kafka's work you see this kind of sense of alienation or um, uh, the struggles of being human in some way so to me that was an interesting theme but we see that the art is something that's very meaningful and and real and i think you know, also in reading the book, uh, or hopefully none of you have woken up as an insect before, but you can probably relate to that feeling. I think everyone can in some way of being othered or being shamed in some way. So in, for whatever it is, sometimes it's more of a stable trait about yourself and some groups still get oppressed and, and treated a certain way where you might feel like you're othered so much. Um, I think that's why, again, did, you know, even as I say that, not putting a bug on the cover it's a sense that it's not that it's a bug, actually, because when we think of groups that get dehumanized, they aren't this thing. They're being treated that way. Um, but I think everyone at some point can have the sense of being othered or not sure they not being sure they belong, feeling alienated or isolated in some way. Um, for some reason, it reminds me of there's a song by Radiohead. It's one of my favorite songs called Karma Police. And at the end. There's a part where Tom York, the lead singer, sings, for a minute there I lost myself. And it could mean a lot of things, but I feel like everyone could relate to that sense of losing themselves or not being sure who they are uh, in some way. And in this sense, relating it to the book, this feeling of being othered in some way or the threat of being othered. We maybe don't feel it so strongly. You might have not experienced it, but there is a sense that I have to be a certain way or else I'm going to be seen as different or less than or as a thing, not part of uh, the mainstream society that I think is such a powerful experience for so many of us that we can have. Even if you don't realize it, we get socialized, and some of that can be good, learning good ways to, to live our life and to care for others and what makes us a good citizen in whatever society we are in. But with that can also come the sense that do you have to lose yourself to be this good person, this good citizen, to be included? And is there a threat that you can lose that standing, which can be scary? So, um, you know, seeing Gregor really 
one day wake up and you also do get the sense that yes he one day wakes up and sees that he's an insect but likely this transformation this metamorphosis was happening for quite some time which to me is also an interesting uh, theme when we think of ourselves um, of how we can change and wake up one day and feel that we're something new someone new and often in a bad way if we don't take steps in the right direction or if we go in a wrong direction you take small steps all of a sudden you're far away from where you'd want to be or where you'd like to be so I think the metamorphosis being so sudden in this book yes it makes sense because that creates this image and this um, type of emotional reaction but really we all are constantly in a change a, a state of changing we never stop changing even aging itself is a type of metamorphosis that we are going through one that we have no control over just like Gregor did it in this sense but there's a lot of ways that we go through different types of a metamorphosis that we do control how we become who we become and I think we can sometimes be afraid of what we have become interestingly there's the show Breaking Bad and the whole theme of that title even Breaking Bad is that at some point he went from being a good guy to a bad guy where was that point and the reason why I also think it's interesting is there's an episode I think called uh, Kafka-esque in the show um, that was kind of funny that 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 theme came to my mind maybe there was some reason why it did but anyway coming back to this book um, the central theme of being isolated and alienated from society to me is quite powerful I think that's why it's it's a book that has stand stood the test of time because people can always relate to that sense no matter what society is at that time there could be this fear or feeling of being alienated or isolated in that and then also as I was saying there's themes in society that might take away our sense of humanity or um, promote them and I think to me there was a lot of themes of the capitalistic mindset that takes away that humanity this sense of what it means to be human what is important about being human in our human experience and so he was being a good productive citizen by making money for the family but maybe that didn't have so much value and we can even say it didn't have as much value because as I mentioned earlier the family was doing more okay than he realized he thought his father had lost all of his money and was just only in debt but then soon sees that his father keeps taking money out of some kind of a safe um, and seems to have some a bit of money and they're selling some things that they have around the house like jewelry and things to survive and then they all get jobs and they're doing okay so in an interesting way it almost devalues what he was doing if that's what made him good and maybe was not that valuable uh, so to me that was also quite fascinating and just to conclude talking about the book today most of the books I read for the show probably 80 I don't know 80 90 percent are non-fiction books I, I do try to read at least several I've read a few just recently this one and another one in the last month or so uh, and often I remember feeling this way for a long time and hearing it that people would say well who wants to read fiction it's just stories um, where it's about you know non-fiction is where you learn facts and knowledge and things like that and of course I love reading um, non-fiction so I enjoy enjoy that um, but I think that there's so much you can gain from reading books of fiction uh, because it can teach us 
about life, about living in a different type of way. Even actually, when I see movies, you know, sometimes you'll see a, a movie based on a true story or about someone's life. And I actually think it's frustrating because it's depicted as being the truth, but it's actually often not. So unfortunately, we, we see a lot of movies about, okay, this is about, there's a movie coming out about Elvis's um, life. And I'm sure in that movie, there's going to be so many things they'll change about his life to make it more suitable for Hollywood, you know? And to me, that's very frustrating because like, well, then just say it's a story and then we kind of learn through it rather than pretending like it's real. Um, and I'm also reminded of Albert Camus' quote, um, fiction is, a, is the lie through which we tell the truth. So fiction is, it's fiction, it's a story, but through fiction, it's how we tell the truth. I, I think that's a wonderful quote. Fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth, Albert Camus. And so this is going back to the sense of what I've talked about when I describe books of fiction is the plot doesn't matter that much. It matters, of course, because that's where the themes also come up. But what happened matters less than why it's happening or what that means. And I think when I was younger, especially, and I read fiction, you know, in high school, and I think it's good to have uh, have uh, high school students read fiction, but usually you're focused more just on the story. Oh, so what happened? Oh, he did this, she did this, and this happened, or this person kills this person, and that makes it interesting. But as you, I think, age, or I can speak for myself, get this sense that you can approach it in a different way where there's themes and things you learn from it, that you actually learn a lot from life through these fictions, these fake stories, but they actually talk about real life, real human experience, and that can be quite powerful. And we always hear that great writers have a good hold of the human experience, or we can say at least some aspects of it that they express. Because what you feel when you read a book of fiction, even in the sense where there was some parts of it that are surreal, is that you want to get the sense that how the people are responding and reacting feels genuine. And so that's often what you see in bad fiction or bad movies or shows is it feels fake. What we mean is that it does, we don't think that the person would respond in that way or would feel this way. That doesn't make sense to us. But a good um, writer is going to capture that. And that's why actually, to me, the great writers were in some ways great psychologists because they, and maybe sociologists and more than that, because they understood human experience, human interactions, could understand how people would respond. You even will hear writers talk about writing a book and they create a character and then they get surprised themselves by what the character does because now when the character becomes this full person, there are things that they do or how they respond that they maybe could not predict until they created them and let them interact or see how they would they would respond. So I really enjoyed this book and um, you know, throughout the year you'll you'll definitely hear me doing some fiction books. So when you give your recommendations, people tend to give me nonfiction books, which I appreciate, but I'm also open to hearing your uh, books of fiction that you would recommend I, I read and discuss on this show. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Hi, Doctor. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for your program. My pleasure. Thank you. Go ahead. What is your question for today? Okay. I've got a question regarding my kids. 
Okay. Um, let me give you a just brief history of what had happened. Um, I have um, um, two girls, one boy, the oldest one, he's 16, going to be almost 17. The middle one, she's 15, and the last one, the youngest one, she's 12. Um, and what had happened, we used to live in California five years ago, and I moved to another state. Okay. Everything kind of was going well with them um, mentally, although there, was in, there were issues in the family. But nonetheless, when we moved here, I think everything changed, um, knowing they didn't like to move. They didn't adopt it even after five years. Um, my oldest one completely isolated himself and didn't go to school, didn't want to do anything. Um, my middle one struggled a lot, bullied, was bullied a lot to the point that um, he had tempted kind of um, to commit suicide. Mm. But so um, after five years being here, um, what is going on right now, we seeking the therapies and everything, everybody is on board, um, um, psychiatrists and everything. But what I don't know what to do as of now is that I know I cannot undo anything. What can I do to make the life better for them to be able to live here? Because there's no way we can go back to California. Okay. But I am very regrettable and unhappy about my decision that I made to bring him here. But I don't know what to do. What would be the best approach to make it much easier to make them not to love here but to like it here and okay. carry on living their life, not to put a stop on it. Well, there's, I mean, there's several different um, things you're bringing up there. One is the last one about your own, you also mentioned your own guilt and regret you have which is going to be significant and also impact how you interact with them. But you're saying how to make them happier or, or like being there. That's a big type of a, a, a question. It's not an easy one to just um, to fix. And, and where do we even begin with that? But tell me a little bit more about what's going on background as far as the family. Were there any other changes? Or is it a two-parent household? Give me more about the family background. We um, I've been married kind of happily, per se. We had ups and downs, but we tried, and uh, we got to the point right now, we are doing much better, and everything is going well, although, as I said, we had ups and downs and the differences. Uh, both, of, both of us um, are educated. Um, I teach at the college and universities. Uh, I'm an MD, but I don't practice because I was diagnosed with MS. So that's why I couldn't practice as a physician. And but we teach. We are in the academy. We are a part of faculty as of now. Okay. And um, basically, I'm the last child. My husband is uh, kind of uh, the fourth after three years. So um, um, we've been both been out of the country for quite a while. He's been out of country since since he was 16 and. I also left Iran when I was 17, and um, I got my education partially in France and in the U.S. 
So this is okay. my our background as a parent. No, okay. So there's you know two parents. I'm sure, of course, he's involved in, in what's going on yes. too. But yes. w- what I'm trying to get is what change. You know, the, I know you're saying the the move, but I, I don't know if the move is what's causing all of this distress and all the challenges you're describing. And did it has anything else been going on, or how are things in general in the home? Or is there anything else about the move that you can tell me that could have made it so impactful on your kids if you think that's the cause of what you've been seeing them go through? I think um, there is two kind of scenario. The move, it was basically, basically it was the reason that I couldn't find a job in my field. Okay. That was the primary reason. And also, I think um, I needed kind of a change because, as I say, we, when I was diagnosed with MS, everything changed in my life. Also, I had to deal with deal with my medical condition, also with my mental state, depression. I was paranoid. So many things, you know, comes with the MS, unfortunately, and depends on the area of the, your brain is being involved. You can have the personality issues, which I challenge. My challenge was primarily primarily was there. Um, I uh, was depressed, I uh, was paranoid, um, uh, the kind of become a little bit suspicious of my husband. Those effects that probably caused them pa- argue. Paranoid about what with your husband? Um, I was became like a, um, paranoid in terms of become not trusting him, although he wasn't doing anything. Mm. But it was a mainly part of the brain damage, the lesion that I had made me become paranoid also. So it wasn't like I wanted to do it. It was intentionally. But those probably led to so many arguments that I had and probably I caused those, which I personally, the guilt that I have because uh, kids are blaming me because I was delusional, I was sick, I was doing this and that. Okay. So that really is bothersome. Yeah. That's why we moved here. But the, probably the argument, the, what had happened, and also the shift in our life, is that like two parents being doctors and not being able to practice um, mm. was something that also they didn't like the idea of living different lifestyle. Yeah. Well, so, the, yeah, that's, I'm sure, well, and it's different lifestyle, but also they've they're seeing you, I mean, did you explain to them why you were no longer practicing? How much do they know about your MS and what you're going through? Oh, the, um, the, from the day one, actually, um, um, I, let, I, I, mean, so I told them everything. They were, were like, as soon as I was diagnosed, I mm-hmm. took them to the meeting, uh, MS Society. They were participating in those uh, meetings and um whatever was going on. So they were aware of everything, and I okay. told them from the day one. And they could see the ambulance coming back and forth because I was really sick. Hmm. So to the house to get me in and out. So they witnessed a lot of turmoil in the household uh, regarding my medical condition and hmm. also my mental state. Well, that's, you know, and now we can see that it seems like the move is obviously it's, it's a component, but... I think these things you're bringing up are probably more significant in what's what's going on. Um, and I know you're saying they get mad at you or they, they blame you. And 
especially as the parent, you might have to take some of that, not that it's all your fault, but to hear their anger and what they're going through. But this is what happens when we focus too much on blame, you know, because, yeah, no, I mean, you weren't responsible for going through these medical and mental health issues that came up because of this illness. And of course, at the same time, maybe you could have done better somewhere, somehow, you know, that's possible too. But blame is not going to get us very far. But if we understand it, this has been a huge uh, stress and blow to the family, you know, what you've gone through with your health. And of course, you experience it the most personally because it's your health, but especially for your kids and even your husband, it's having a big impact on them. And, and I can imagine there's more going on than just that. So um, I'm sure you've had to accept and acknowledge a lot of changes because of what you're going through with your health. But accepting that this is the reality of you and the family now will be important. And you can't likely go back to before your illness or, you know, before these health issues. And you might have to accept that what is our new best possible type of life look like, but it might not be as it was before. And the more, you know, you, you maybe have already, you can acknowledge your kids' pain in all this and what they've had to go through. So again, it's not about the blame that it's your fault that they're hurting, but that you can understand that this has been hard for them seeing you, um, I'm assuming, lose some of your abilities physically or in, in whatever ways that has incapacitated you, seeing the fights that you and your husband had about what you were going through with the paranoia related to the lesions. So again, that wasn't your fault, but we can get that that's probably been very hurtful to them. So the more you can acknowledge that and the less guilt actually you have, the better you can acknowledge that because every time if they bring it up, it brings up all of your guilt. That's going to make it hard for you to be there for your kids with what they're going through because your own feelings are going to be coming up so strong. So I, I shared a lot there about different thoughts uh, that I have on some of the things that you shared. But tell me a bit about what's it been like between you and your kids and talking about, you said they've been involved about um, what's been going on from the beginning, but about how it impacted you and how that impacted them. Actually, to be honest, for me, um, I I try not to let the MS take everything from me. Mm -hmm. I try to... Um, not to let it become a challenge and thank God despite of my I guess like very progressive stage of MS I don't have any cognitive uh, like disabilities or any my cognitive function is impacted like, it's okay and I'm functioning probably 100% although with ache and agonies you know what I mean it's, mm. I'm I'm functioning not at full capacity, but I don't look like an MS patient. That's the only thing that I have as of now. Uh, I don't know how far um, it's going to take me uh, because of the severity of my illnesses, but mm. um, I try to function as a normal person so my kids wouldn't be subject to any extra pain and agony seeing me disabled. So I do my best in that aspect. But mm -hmm. I think what had happened mentally and the way I reacted to everything and I was down and probably the paranoia, the argument affected them also along the way, moving them here. Mm -hmm. Because I wanted a change. I, I know there was a different component to that move because not finding a job, a job that we wanted 
and so many other things, but probably I needed a change. I needed to get away, but probably that wasn't a right decision to make at that time because they rooted there, they they had their own friends, everything was in place for them, in place for them. So they blaming me for moving them here. Okay. So although I try to explain my reasoning, but they know that was the only reason. That mm-hmm. was my thought process. That was the priority. That was what I was thinking. Not for me, not for them. Yeah. Um, and when they bring that up, I mean, I guess it doesn't feel good if they're blaming you. Again, that word or that type of uh, feeling is very powerful and it can get in the way of actually getting to some kind of resolution. But I hope you can understand their frustration and pain with it. And, you know, you might explain just so they understand why, but it doesn't mean it didn't hurt them or it wasn't tough for them at the same time, no matter what the reasoning was. And they didn't want it, but they had to go through that. And so um, there's also this feeling I'm getting of this is a whole family dynamic. And so it might have been that moving was better for the family overall, too, even though it wasn't ideal, but maybe that was the best thing. It's possible. But that still doesn't mean that the kids didn't take that in a, in a way that hurt, hurt them or upset them. Now, what you've described, though, is it seems like there's a lot more going on than just you know, a mother has, uh, you know, has MS and that affects the kids. You know, you're saying one of your children was suicidal. So there's more going on. And I also want to know more about you and your husband and how unified you feel through all this. So it's a huge challenge that you're going through. Uh, but the more unified you are, the more that can help. The more, the less unified, or if there's conflict, then you just add add stress to what you're going through. So we're at a commercial break, but I want us to continue afterwards um, pursuing some of those types of, of lines of thinking. And of course, during the break, whatever comes to your mind that you haven't shared with me about what's going on, we can pick up there, okay? No problem. Okay, all right. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to them now. Caller, are you still there? Uh, Hi. Yes, I am. Okay. So anything come to you during the break that you wanted to share? Um, I think what I did, I um, sat with them and kind of explained it to them that although we moved here, I cannot undo the past. I'm so sorry for you being hurt and uh, and you've been subject to anything that you should go through, the changes. Might must have been painful, and I acknowledge that. Okay. I can undo the past. I'm so sorry, mm-hmm. uh, but I tried to change myself for better, mentally and physically. So it's not going to affect you anymore, enemies down the road. But I asked them what they want me to do to make it better for them. So um, although they had to go through a lot of challenges by themselves. Um, that was my question, but it's still, I they don't come on the on board, on, the, on board with me. I don't mm-hmm. think they ex- accepted my apology. That that feel, guilt feeling is there always, and it, it's really bothersome. And just I don't know. I always ask myself what I've done. I should have done this, or would have done better. I'm kind of living in if. 
if would have been this way or would have been that way. I could have done this or could have done that. It just is a turmoil for me. And I, it makes me really sad not seeing them upset or depressed. And I really yeah. don't know uh, what else I can do to make it much easier. Well, you know, some... You know what we mentioned. I, sorry, I didn't. I thought you were done there. I didn't mean to cut you off. But I, I, the sense that, like I was saying before, we can never, we can't go back to before your your illness, and so the move seems to have been around that time in some ways, or when things maybe changed more. Um, so there could be something about the move. It's not just about moving locations, which I'm sure was hard for them, but the sense that life has changed. And I know you're saying you try not to let it affect your show, but it seems like it does. I'm sure it does in a variety of ways and and that's something that you all will have to accept too whatever ways it does affect you but there could be this feeling of we wish we can go back to before this all started happening that they might also be feeling so it's not that i would suggest you tell them that's why you're upset it's not about moving to to remove that guilt but that's just a thought what what do you think about that It's, uh, the change is actually for, the, like for my daughter that she fought for the last few years in order to fit in. They couldn't accept her. She was queen bee back in California and uh-huh. coming here, not having any friends, being uh, treated as an outcast. She was different. She was vocal. Um, uh, so uh, she had to go through a lot of lots of challenges mm-hmm. through like almost two years until like last year she completely sh- shattered and had this that suicidal thought because she was trying so hard she is a fighter and she's very vocal but that difference is made to have a, a target at the school mm-hmm. uh, she was bullied um, she was continuously crying about the bullying and uh, teacher are not treating her correct well because she's different. She's from another state, so she, or she doesn't participate in the certain religious event, or she doesn't believe on for so many others believe that she didn't uh, was content to kind of share with them. So it was it it was hard for her. It was really I know she tried, but she couldn't fit in. So. There was a time that she crashed. Mm-hmm. I think she couldn't do it, but that really affected me. Uh, put me in a kind of put back me to the square one with my mental health and my physical. So I had lots of flare-up at that time that she was sick also. I'm sure. So uh, it, it was a difficult time. Thank God, and with the help of therapists and everything, every people that are helping us, supporting us. We're getting through, but she's still struggling with the thought of staying here. She wants to go back. She wants to experience the high school back there. She continuously um, telling, telling me that I've robbed her, her life, being able to experience the graduation, the prom back in California. So those thoughts is really, is really heavy on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. It's kind of greedy on my neck every day yeah it's hard sure well and then so tell me about your you know your husband and your relationship with him but then also how he's you know in what ways he's involved with all of this in a way um, um 
probably most of the time we talk, discuss um, what we wanted to do. But at the end of the day, it will be my decision. He doesn't disagree if I make a decision despite of his disagreement. So he always on board. Although down the road, if something happened, the blames come back to me. That was your decision. Mm. So you mean he's having him on board? Yeah, is good. Because but you're saying he he'll people. blame you too. He blames you. You're saying also? Yeah, he blames me oh. also. Okay. For the changes, because as I say, he's on board with me while we are discussing about things, uh, the decision that we need to make. Um, but at the end of the day, I make the final call. I'm the one who makes the final call. But if something goes wrong, he's coming back at me. Okay, you did that. You should have done that. That's why the kids are paying for that, especially the move. Although he was agreeing, he agreed with it, and that was with the move, and he liked the idea. And he loves it here, actually. He probably is the only one who loves it here. But um, at the end of the day, he's kind of agree with the kids the move wasn't the right decision to make. So what does he think you guys should have done? He, he thinks that we should have stayed back in California and, and I uh, responded kind of made it wrong decision uh, emotionally uh, not being in a good frame of mind while I might make my decision. Well, I mean, do you think it was the wrong decision or you think it was the right decision? If you, it's a, it's always, it's a, I don't know, if, if you look at it, financial gain or what I do right now, I love it. We both have a job that we want to do, we teach, and I enjoy it. But it's a good move in that aspect. But for the law scene, by gaining this status financially, uh, I don't know whatever you name it, but I think I lost my case in this game. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, even asking you now, as I asked it, I know we have to be careful because afterwards we see the result. It's going to be easy, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty to say you should have done this or you should have done that. Really, we have to go back to when you made the decision. Um, but, you know, I was asking about you and your husband and how united you feel. And there seems to be, like there's some, but that when things go bad or the bad parts come up, then the blame gets on you. It's almost like it's the, the four of them against I, you in some way. As a pun, I call myself punching back. Yeah. Yeah, that's the sense I'm getting, at least your experience of it, is that it's, it becomes like the four of them against you. If things are good, it's good. But when it's bad, it's like, oh, see, that this is your fault that it's bad rather than this sense that you're all going through it now together, you know, five years down the line, there does seem to be this sense of it hasn't been accepted, like what these changes that have happened, you know, moving is, is very hard, uh, you know, and for kids and different ages. Um, and so I don't want to undermine what your kids have gone through by saying this, but you know, people, kids go through it, it does happen. And so each circumstance can be unique, but still it's something that many children do go through, but there's a sense that every day it's still being brought up as if the decision is it's like the decision is being made every day you know like it hasn't been fully accepted as this is our life now this is what we're doing or let's make the best of it there's almost the sense of uh, every day let's you know bring up what we're gonna do you know so that's the the feeling i'm getting from you is that there hasn't been this acceptance of the move 
Um, and I also feel like it's an acceptance of what you're going through in some other way. And the move can be, uh, yes, the kids have gone through some challenges, but life has changed a lot. I know you're saying you try to not have it limit you in, in a lot of ways, but they, I'm sure they've seen their mom change, you know, in some ways. Or they did see you go through that change, you're saying, even mentally, emotionally during that time. Um, but there, there's a sense I get that a lot has changed. Probably, <clears throat> but um, what I don't understand is that, um, 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 as I said, the achievement, if you look at it, is huge. We gain a lot. But I wish I could have kind of aligned with this, this achievement that we had here to just with my kids happiness. I, I I know um, I don't tell my kids probably this change moving from California to here affected me more than anybody else in this family. It was a handbag to me because I don't discuss it as of now to make them worry, but it advanced 10 years. Um, like it, it progressed much faster. The last uh, report I had, it was like, um, it really is progressing very fast because of all the turmoil and the um, stress that I'm going through, which is the number one killer in my cases of worsening my situation. But I don't want to let them know what's going on by putting on more stress is not going to be beneficial for none of us because at the end of the day, I'm the one who's going to be um, subsequently witcher bound or paralyzed or mm. anything else or losing my cognitive function. Um, this is what I'm dealing with right now. I know what, what's going on. I know I'm aware of all the changes, but at the same time, I don't want to be that changes to me to be a, kind of an add-on to the frustration sure. and stress. Yeah, and especially, I, I mean, as a parent, you don't want to say to your kids, what you're going through has made me, you know, hurt me more than it hurt you or even has hurt me a lot and emphasize that, you know, if your yeah. child is struggling. But, you know, your husband is uh, in it's a different dynamic than with your kids. How is he about like, do you feel like he understands your pain or the struggles that you've gone through? He does. He does. He's kind of trying um he was against me sharing my MS with the kids from day one. He didn't like the idea, but I thought that would be the best of interest for them to know what I'm going to do. I okay. don't want him to be like color all of a sudden subject to seeing me in the wheelchair and asking yeah. what had happened. And I told him I got it. And I said, what well, you haven't told us that. So I discussed that issue, but Right, and as of now, he is supportive by letting him know that the changes I know you guys went when you went through. He's trying to make it clear for them this is our life as of now, and try to make the best out of it. And if the things happen, you never know what tomorrow is holding for you. So uh, he's on board with them to support them. Yes, he's acknowledging that mom made a decision. That's fine, although it might have been that she did something wrong, per se, per se, but it was it, it was in your best of interest at that time. It was, in, it was too consensual, the decision. It wasn't based like, we want to hear you and move you. Yeah. But, but do you feel like, he, you know, that's with the kids. With you and him, how do you feel 
as far as being supported or how he you know helps you or makes you feel about what, what's he's, going on? He's very supportive. As okay. I said, unfortunately, I um, some lesion in a different area, frontal valve, uh, or some other part of my brain can cause having me like be paranoid, as I said, or. Does that I still mean, that I still mean, happens, or that was just that it time? It does. It does. It, okay. As I say, it's a, I can't do anything about it because there are lesions in certain area that cause paranoid. I can mm. like not be able to assess uh, the situation and not to get rid of that negative thought. And depression is a part of it. But I'm I'm battling continuously battling with that idea and not try to think about anything and let it. To occupy all this space that I have in my brain, but sometimes it's really um, bothersome. But he's trying his best not to um, let the, that thought and get to get worse. All the sometimes out of control, and in my in my frustrated, you know, uh, by by my thought and by my anger or things that it doesn't uh, seems right to me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I could tell that affects the relationship, but you've mentioned that how you're being affected. I still, you know, the thing I'm feeling from you a lot is the sense that the decision hasn't been fully accepted. And I feel like even some of what you're going through has not been fully accepted, I think, by you as well, of how it's affecting you. Um, and so this sense that the family's almost every you know i know you're bringing up these stories i doubt it's literally every day um talking about going back or why did we move you know it's kind of like it reminds you of when people came from iran and there was a sense we're about to go back so they wouldn't want to settle in here and feel like this is home so there's a sense of like we might be going back or they almost don't want to enjoy it and so you don't want to undermine what they're going through and saying well you have to accept it and make life good here but there is some of that of okay if we're living here, if moving back isn't really an option, how do we make our lives better here? Which is what you were asking me. How do you do that? But there's a sense of doing that all together that from what I'm hearing from you, it's a sense of this, the move being a mistake or why did we do it? It's constantly there rather than it's been accepted and now trying to make the best of, of life where you are. Or is there a realistic chance of moving back or does this get brought up as something that could happen? Uh, at one point, I told them uh, if I find a position that we can support, pays well, I don't see any reason we cannot go back. But as of now, it's not feasible. There's no way for us, there's no way for us to be able to go back. Mm-hmm. But I, I gave them the option that I am not kind of stuck here I can move but for you guys but it has to be something that is feasible we can financially to support ourselves which is not the case right now so financially you would not be able to support yourself just on your husband's income uh, that means for me to move back to California no, no I'm just wondering when you feasible? say financially it's not feasible so you're saying if you are not working your you know your family would not be able to... No, well, I was talking about if the kids were asking why we don't go back, right. and I told, I told them, no, we can. But both of us are working here. We don't have any work. We have to apply. If I want, I mean, if they hire me, that's fine. We go back. But right now, it's, it's not feasible. Um, 
um, that's not the case for us to go back to California. As of now, for me, uh, kind of to cut the cord and let them know that it's not working for us to be able to go back. We purchase a house. I try to just um, uh, let them do whatever they like to do in the new house, uh, change the environment, give them, give them more stability. So that was what I tried to do. Yes, but, both of us were working yeah, as but, a faculty. That's fine. Financially, if I, I love to work, and I do it most of the time online, so I don't need to come here. Uh, but, um, yes, we can. But I, I love to do it. It's okay. not just something financially related. So it's not just I the financial. Yeah. But, you know... Th- yeah, this sense of like you know you want them to settle in there, or or enjoy their life there. That's that's the feeling I get is that they they're there's even though it's five years, accepting that this is home is not seems like it's not there. And then it comes back to it's your fault that we're here, rather than how do we make a home here. So I don't feel the sense of all five of you working to make a new family life there, even though it's not even that new. It's been five years, and that's what I mean that I I keep getting the sense that accepting the reality of your situation, both your health and what's going on, and that this is where we're living, seems to not be there. And so there isn't this making things the best they can be where we are, because it's constantly, I shouldn't be here, or my life's not good because of this decision, rather than how can we make life good. That's why I was wondering, your husband, now, and then you're saying when things get bad, he might come back and you're, you're the punching bag. Um, but that's something for you to also be aware of. Are you allowing yourself not to blame you if you're being the punching bag, but do you explain to them that, or especially to your husband, that we have to accept the situation, even though, yes, maybe it was more for my work, but this is what we did as a family, not just it's about me. You know, I keep feeling that you're the one that's getting all the blame. Yeah, actually we do. He explained it also, and I also explained to everybody is I did not make that decision um, willingly to just change it, to do, have changes for myself. Mm-hmm. I did it to have a change that impacted everybody also. Yeah. And it might have turned out differently for yeah. you guys, and it wasn't intentionally. I right. Did it so let's come back. You know, I'm looking at the time. Actually, I should have went to a break a couple of minutes ago. What is it that, you know, you are trying to figure out right now? You know, you're asking me, how can you make their life better? What does that even mean to you, make their life better? It's uh, just to come to acceptance, to that stage of acceptance. Yeah. How can I make it easier for them? This is the part that if they come to agree and accept it, so everything falls apart. The, the, the puzzle is kind of done. Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying. I feel like that's a, and it could be your guilt also is playing a part in this that you, you're not wanting it to be that, you know, this is our reality. You know, it's almost like you're possibly giving them the sense that we might go back more than should be the best approach. So you, because you feel so bad that they're so unhappy here, you might not want to accept that this is what has been created. So it's like, well, maybe we will, or it could happen. Uh, not that as you're saying it could happen, but like I said, for me, there's a lot of things that feel up in the air. And so you and your husband might have to establish more of like, this is our life. How can we make our life the best that we can here as a family, individually? What do we all have to do to make that for ourselves better and for the whole family? But the sense I get from you is that it's just so um, not accepted that it's just, you know, I know it's probably on your mind a lot. It might not be every day it's brought up, 
with the sense that it's constantly on everyone's minds. So I think that acceptance, you'll have to accept it yourself, including your health condition and however it's affecting you. But your husband will also have to be on board with you. Like, okay, this is this is our home, guys. How do we make this home work for all of us? How do we make this the best for all of us? Okay. Okay. I will try my best. Yeah. And, and, and I think... Yeah, good luck. It's, it's not going to be easy, but I think this um, the blame... It's not going to get us very far, and you're not the one that's doing most of it, but you have to make sure you also resolve your own guilt and forgive yourself for it. Not that it means you undermine the pain your kids are going through, but to not blame yourself because that's going to make it harder for you, but wish you the best with that and to your whole family. Okay, thank you so very much for your time. Now. My pleasure. pleasure talking to so you. nice talking to you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. With the previous caller, uh, I mentioned the the concept of blame several times, so I want to speak a few minutes on that topic right now. And we are very easily drawn to this idea of blame. When you get hurt or upset by something, we quickly like to think of whose fault it is that caused that. And it's actually we like to have a target for our anger. So something hurts us, we want to know who hurt us. Um, Even you see this sometimes, something will happen, and it's not the person's fault that ended up causing the pain. Let's say someone pushed you to push into them. You might push the person that ended up hitting you, even if someone else caused the, the, the pain or caused the reaction. Or, you know, lots of cultures do this, but I see a lot of Persian parents, if the kid hits their head or leg against the wall, they go hit the wall, right? We like to have a reason to blame, oh, this bad wall hurt you um, because it feels good to be able to put it on someone or have some target of that because that's what we experience. On Monday, I was talking about compassion when we have this bad feeling when someone else is suffering. With anger, we feel like we've been wronged by someone in some way and it feels good to, in that moment, get it out on that person. And, and let them know or person thing, whatever it might be. So when we have disagreements, when we have issues that come up, blame tends to be the way we focus on things. And also as relates to things like our legal system, who's guilty or who's innocent, who's more right or wrong. And unfortunately, even in our family or marital relationships and interactions, we bring this same, same theme. And I've sometimes joked that when I do couples therapy, especially the first session, I feel like I should uh, walk in or join the session wearing a judge's robe because it feels like the couple has come in and wants me to tell them who's the better husband or wife or who's the good or bad partner in this relationship, who's winning and losing. And so, yes, there has to be this airing of grievances in ways that both people have been hurt. But what I always remind them is, is that if you want your relationship to get better, Rather than pointing the finger at each other, you have to point the finger back at yourself to say, what can I do better to to make this relationship better? What have I done that has caused these problems first? And what can I do better to make things better in this relationship rather than just pointing the finger at the other person? And so rather than focusing on blame, and I I can't remember the authors, those three authors, um, it was from a few years ago the book Difficult Conversations. And to me, this concept of contribution in a, in a disagreement versus blame was very significant. Because when we focus on blame, 
that tends to be about judgment, who's good and bad, who's right or wrong. And it stays in the past. So who was wrong here? You were wrong. Oh, haha, I win. You were bad. And that's it. But we don't really actually make things better. And if you're in an interaction with someone and you focus on blame, even if you're, let's say, right in that way and you win the argument, uh, you might feel good for a moment, but your partner doesn't feel very good and it doesn't lead to making things better. But that tends to be our default. So we'll have to resist that tendency to go towards blaming and seeing who's more right or who was more wrong and focus instead on contribution. So contribution means we both look at how did I contribute to this disagreement, this conflict, whatever it might be. And I know in an overly simplified way, we can make it seem like it's always going to be 50-50. Of course not, but not even getting so focused on that part because that goes back to blame. But try to understand what have I contributed to this problem. And we usually have a harder time finding that. It's very easy for us to say, oh, this person did this to me. They were so wrong. We're biased in so many ways to our own story, our own feelings, our own experience that we're going to go there. But we can recognize that virtually in any type of a disagreement, especially in a relationship, there's going to be something you contributed. A common case where people say, well, no, I didn't actually this time is they say, well, look, this person kept hurting me in some way. And actually what we tend to see in those situations that your contribution wasn't that you hurt them because you weren't doing anything, but that was the problem. You weren't doing anything. So the first time they hurt you or upset you, you didn't say anything, didn't bring it up, didn't uh, let the person or your partner know. And so that issue or situation built up and festered resentment in you and kept being an issue. And so part of that responsibility from your end, your contribution was that you did not bring up the issue earlier. So what we want to focus on is, okay, what did I, I do bad or wrong here that I can recognize and acknowledge and share with the other person, whether it's your partner, friend, business associate, whoever it might be. And this allows us, rather than focusing on the past and on judgment, to focusing on the present, on, on what we can do better. Okay, so this is what happened, and so what can we learn from this going forward? The winner is not going to be me or you. The winner could be us together. We learn something about what happened. We learn something about what we both did. If both people acknowledge how they contributed to it, that tends to make each other, the other person, feel good. Okay, I can say at least you're acknowledging what you did. So I don't have to feel this stress or pressure to convince you that you did something wrong, right? Because if we got hurt by someone or hurt by some experience and we feel like the other person doesn't even understand what they did, that's a very scary feeling because now I feel like, well, how do I know you even will not do this again? You don't even get what you did this time. But if you show me, you know what, oh, I, I did this and I think that was not good and I can do that better or I can do that differently next time, that can give you a sense of relief that they know and they can possibly change that rather than they don't even think it was bad. Right? If someone punches you in the arm and it hurts and they say, I didn't even do anything, well, now you're afraid to be around them because you feel that they can hurt you and think it's totally okay and not even realize what they're doing. But if someone says, oh, that was horrible. I'm really sorry I did that. I don't want to do that anymore. That was my contribution to this fight or this pain. Then you can feel better that hopefully they, they at least know what's there to change it. So that's a, a shift that can be very important to move away from blame and proving who's right or wrong and to focus more on contribution. How have we both contributed in each individual reflecting? How did I contribute to this conflict 
that we are now experiencing or we experienced. And then through that, rather than focusing on the judgment and the blame of the past, focus on what happened and how we can move forward, focusing on that contribution. So shifting from blame to contribution can be a, a very powerful step and shift in improving our conflict resolution and allowing us to, rather than winning against each other, win together. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So to end the show today on my story on Instagram, I had posted something or shared something from School on Wheels, which is an organization in Los Angeles that provides tutoring and educational academic support to children and families experiencing homelessness in the Los Angeles area. Uh, but it was related to LGBTQ plus youth. And it says uh, it's a, a statistic that up to 40% of the total youth experiencing homelessness are from the LGBTQ uh, community. And so, um, and I posted that when people ask why pride matters, this is why. And so June is um, LGBTQ plus IA um, awareness month or pride month. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where we have these days or months that are commemorating something or we focus on on something, which is good because it's, it's bringing attention to something. But of course, it's one of those things that um, it's not just for one month out of the year or one day out of the year, whatever the type of thing that we're talking about is. We want to focus on it. And I think this is most strongly exemplified in the commercialization of anything that, that happens really in, in the world. But we see that, you know, there's every logo. If you go online, so many companies, corporations change their logo to include the rainbow flag or the logo becomes a rainbow or somehow there's a rainbow in it saying we're in solidarity, which in a way can be nice, but often it's a type of virtue signaling uh, where really there's no genuine feeling. It's just that you, you have to do that to show that you're good or you're okay or woke or whatever it might be. You're trying to signal something more than it's coming from a genuine place. But so we have these types of, you know, months or experiences of, of days that we have. And, and even there's a pride parade and things. I don't know if it's this weekend or next weekend um, coming up in Los Angeles and in different cities where people experience things. And one of the things I've heard people say before is, oh, pride. Like, why should you have pride about your sexual orientation. Um, that's something to be proud of. And so what I think is important, why I wrote the, that that way, and you'll see a lot of um, posts and messages with this same theme, is that the reason why pride exists, or even it's, it's expressed in that way, is that when you've made to feel something about you should be hidden, and worse than just be hidden, that it makes you immoral or bad, or even uh, as a psychologist, acknowledging that for so many years it was considered a mental illness to be homosexual, but to be immoral, you couldn't be trusted, you couldn't be in the military in the United States. Um, the Deviance War by Eric Cervini a couple of years ago I read, which was really powerful on that theme of serving in the military as a homosexual. And so when we see that it's been, you've been treated a certain way and been made to feel bad and even experienced discrimination uh, in various ways, even bullying and worsen things that are, you know, violence and things of that nature. 
when you are embracing and understanding that you never had something to feel bad about in the first place, it can make sense that you will respond with what is pride of showing that, of wanting to be not afraid. So it's an expression of not having to be afraid of something that for so long you have had to be made afraid of or to feel afraid of and still do. So it's not that when people have pride now and they're discussing their sexual orientation or not being heterosexual openly, that they feel comfortable completely and never face anything negative. No, it still can be challenging, especially depending on on where you live. So I know many of the listeners, especially when you're uh, listening live, are Iranian. Imagine if you moved somewhere or, you know, even here, let's say if you're in the United States and you're told that it's bad to be Iranian and you're put down for being Iranian and ridiculed. And of course, some of these things did happen. But imagine if it was even more systematic and constantly you were feeling these things still where you could you had to hide that you're Iranian because you could get beat up or hurt in some way or not allowed to be Iranian and, and been told that you were less than or worse or immoral or all sorts of things for being Iranian and then slowly it became more okay or people were giving you solidarity that you can accept that. I could imagine a lot more people would want to wear an Iranian flag or wear it on themselves or the colors or something of that sort because they have been felt uh, that this was something that's to be ashamed of or put away and now they can express and not have to feel bad about. So recognize that I think sometimes people, because when we talk about LGBTQ issues, it also involves of course, sex and sexuality, and that has certain um, connotations it brings up for us just morally that it's even wrong to think about those things or to focus on those things. Um, It can make people think that it's about having sex or wanting to have sex or experience those things that makes people have pride, but it's about this sense of being who you are and having that identity and having it be okay, having it be accepted. So if people were never oppressed in the first place, there would be no need for this type of pride that people express. It's from that oppression that it comes from. It's a reaction to that or a response to that over time that it's not something that needs to be hidden. And so as I discussed in the first segments of the book, uh, of the show, the book The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka, and there was this sense of alienation and of being dehumanized also, um, we can see this sense of dehumanization. And that's why I think that not putting a bug on the cover as he wanted is a sense that it's not to say there's a direct link there, but that the sense of being felt to be being made to feel like you're an other in some way, that you're no longer human. And we've, we've seen that throughout history. And so anytime we put a group of people down and it's something to recognize, or even if you bully an individual, it's not from their weakness that you would disrespect or dehumanize or treat them poorly. It's from your weakness that we you do that if you're cursing at someone if you're physically assaulting someone we tend to think and it can make us feel strong but it's coming from our own weakness that we do these things and so if you have certain feelings and usually when i post something um, about different things but especially the lgbtq community i get mostly almost overwhelmingly positive messages and responses, but sometimes I'll get some more negative or ones that are more questioning of it in a sense of, well, is this good or is this something um, to support? And the reason why I talk about these issues often is because of things like that, where the rates of homelessness for youth in 
the United States even is higher for members of the LGBTQ community. Often they are treated poorly by their own families or not accepted by them or face different types of discrimination within their own family or whatever else they go through outside of the family that contributes to that. Rates of suicide tend to be higher. So it's not just this, um, it's good, it's nice type of a thing. We're, we're talking about literal life and death here. It's not just that it should be good to make them feel more okay. We're talking about this sense that some people are more likely to take their lives because of how they get treated in society. And I've shared this statistic before, but this was um, in the United States, the findings that when states legalized gay marriage, there was a decrease in those states of suicide in LGBTQ teenagers and individuals. And so this is why I'm saying connecting to this book, the sense of being othered or being made to feel like you don't belong in some way or you don't have the same rights as everyone else can make you feel like you maybe should not exist, that maybe you're a burden, maybe you should not be yourself and who you are. And that's something that I think we should take very, very seriously of how we approach one another and how we treat one another. Being a psychologist, I... I'm very lucky to be let into people's worlds emotionally and what they go through. And I've seen, it's not just in our culture, so you see it across the world, but unfortunately, working with Iranian families and individuals, seeing how people treat their own, even family members at times, because of how they were born or who they are, that somehow they shouldn't be loved as much or even accepted in some ways or accepted fully and acceptance itself is on a spectrum. Sometimes people say, well, we accept our son, but we don't want to ever meet anyone he's dating, if he's gay, let's say, or we'll never have him at the house, or if other people are there, well, of course we can't, because that will look, how will that look to people? And so that's not acceptance. Acceptance means I accept all of you, not I accept part of you, or I would accept you differently if you were, let's say, straight. Of course, you could bring your girlfriend over, but not your boyfriend. So recognizing the ways that we are harming one another for reasons that are not anything to do with how we should be treating them, how people were born, who they are. Uh, and I often have mentioned this thought of, well, what, we, what do we think in the future people will look at and, and laugh at us, as we always do, in a way that you can look in the past, and I mean laugh as in like you can't believe that people did these things or believed these things, and I'm very confident that this is one of those issues that who someone is attracted to or who they want to be with being a reason to treat them poorly to me is something that's unexplainable that won't be something that even still of course we're moving in that direction and many people see that but more and more that will be the case that it's the wrong thing and what were we doing and of course it'll be tragic so when i say laugh at it doesn't mean you know it's just funny because but it's laughable the type of thinking and logic to treat people poorly because of that you know, if you're listening right now, you don't know who I like or who I'm with or what I'm doing. I hope you just listen to what I'm saying. And that's what's going to matter. And shouldn't mean that you would treat me one way or the other because of whatever else it is going on. Um, what difference should it make if you're interacting with someone, what they, who they want to date or be with or not be with or whatever it might be. But it can become this such a big issue. And we also have to be careful because sometimes things that give us such a strong what feels like automatic and is automatic emotional reaction, it can make us think it's something significant. And so this is where 
I think it's always so hard to tease apart. Well, what is like a human nature or what is part of our nature and instinctual and what is cultural and what have we learned? And it's always going to be hard to find some line of what that is for any type of issue. But what can happen is that things that we get uh, enculturated in from a very young age feel so automatic and real that we think it, it totally is real just as it is. And I think money is a great example of that. When you, you know, see money or hear money or someone made money, lost money, automatically you have a reaction, such a quick, strong one for most people, which makes us think money is a, such a real thing. And of course, it's what it's related to and it connotes for us about safety and security and also status and whatever else. Um, but itself, money has value because of how we value it. But I can show you dollar bills and depending on where you're from that money will have more value to you but it feels very natural but if i show you show you money from another country and you can't tell it's the currency of some place or it doesn't have any value to you you won't feel anything whereas for someone else it'll feel so instinctual so coming back to this uh, sense of if you feel something no no this is just naturally right or wrong or this has to be this way recognize that a lot of things that you think are just natural or have to be a certain way it's more about the ways you were brought up and what you've heard in my lifetime i've seen such a shift in people's reaction to something like gay marriage in the united states it hasn't changed itself our feelings about it have changed seeing the public consensus change has changed our minds we all like to think we think for ourselves, and no one affects what i think and i'm such a rational thinker we are all affected by emotion. We are all affected by the opinions and thoughts and feelings of people around us. It's something we have to accept. But also we want to accept that what feels so right to us, it doesn't mean that it's right. It's that it feels right because of what you've been told matters. And sometimes if you look at your life, you'll look back and think, wow, I can't believe this was true or this was the right way to be or the only way to be. Um, and I hope that if you have some feelings or thoughts about members of the LGBTQ community or you're not sure about it, you can recognize that you've been told from a young age that something about it was wrong or not okay or even worse words than that. But human beings deserve human rights and human respect and love. And you want to make sure that any individual you are not giving that to, it's showing something less about you rather than them. So I hope we can promote more and more tolerance, but more than tolerance, acceptance and love and to be an agent for that type of change, which starts, of course, from all of us within ourselves, but then how we talk about and interact with, with all people and, and what we can do to make that positive change. I hope we can all do that, and I strive to do that myself. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. A thank you to Batis here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahid Have a wonderful week. <laughs>